The following is a special presentation from Common Sense Institute. On Tuesday, December 14th, Common Sense Institute hosted its first Free Enterprise Summit. This event featured the release of Colorado's Free Enterprise Report, a first-of-its-kind reference for Colorado that compiles a wide range of economic and policy indicators. We hosted an impressive lineup of Colorado leaders, including J.J. Ament from the Denver Metro Chamber, Tom Brook from Denver South, Chris Brown from CSI, Debbie Brown from Colorado Business Roundtable, Dave DeVia from the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association, and Kristen Strom, President of Common Sense Institute. Please enjoy remarks from Chairman Earl Wright, President Kristen Strom, and Vice President of Policy and Research Chris Brown, followed by panel discussion. Thank you for listening, and for more information, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. And now, the Free Enterprise Summit. drive policy and impact our world. We prioritize action over reaction, data over partisanship, and evidence over hype. CSI is shaping the debate. A new report from a nonpartisan research organization looks into the state's economic spending and planning to accommodate homelessness. New taxes and fees will cost the state around $1.8 billion per year. That's according to a study by the Common Sense Institute, a nonpartisan organization advocating for Colorado's economy. Research organization, the Common Sense Institute. Now, the Common Sense Institute recently estimated that Colorado needs to build nearly 55,000 units of housing a year just to Catch up. Facts are truth, and truth is power. It's just common sense. Good morning. It's great to all have you all here. Uh, isn't it great to get out finally and have a meeting? What do you think? Well, uh, this is our inaugural Free Enterprise Summit. It's one of those. Uh, touch points, uh, 10 years that we have been in existence. Um, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. I'm the co-founder and chairman of the board of what I refer to as a remarkable institution that uh, folks like you and I created because we are concerned about our state and public policy issues that our state was going through 10 years ago. But what did we know? Hey, we were just five, six, you know, Business people, you know, what did we know? We were educated at CU, some of us. Uh, don't hold that against them. Uh, some of them had advanced degrees. You know, what did we know? Uh, some of them had even created businesses here, employed hundreds of people. What did we know? Some of them had even resulted in generations of businesses that were here. So what did we know about public policy? Well, we did know one thing. There were issues that were going on in the state that weren't really well understood, and there were laws that were being passed that, in our opinion, you had to come back and ask yourself, wait a minute, why is that occurring? The economic impact of free enterprise, which is the cornerstone of the economic success of this state, is being negatively impacted by some things. But again, what did we know? We're only six people, so what did we decide to do? Well, let's figure out how we can bring some objective rationale and, and, and quantitative analysis to the issues. Well, what does that resulted in? Well, we got an econometric model, 
Few states, if any, have ever developed a econometric model unique to their own state. It costs us a little bit of money, but once again, we were there, we said, hey, if we're going to do something for this state, we're going to have to step forward just beyond our time and our energy and our talent. We're going to have to put some dollars together to do that. So what has resulted? Well, we have fact-based, and I love this term, common sense decisions being made. Have you heard that term a lot coming out of Washington now? How about just locally? Common sense just says this or that. CSI's team continues to grow. And uh, hopefully Christian will talk about that, but I couldn't believe that 10 years ago we would be producing 40 relevant reports that have to do with state policy, and that's how many reports were published last year on public policy issues. Thanks to Cinnamon Watson and the leadership of our group, we've had 300 media mentions in the news. Now we have the largest, believe it or not, social media following of any think tank in Colorado. That, I think, is amazing. And it all started with an idea. How do we help make Colorado better with better public policy decisions? But it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been your interest and your support and you're saying, hey, that's a good idea, but also further than that, saying, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Which only made us a better organization as a result. Let's talk about what recently what's happened. We've taken a comprehensive look at the economic impact on some really wide topics. How about housing prices? How many of you are having difficulties possibly recruiting people have heard about the, the higher rent increases that are occurring? that people all of a sudden can't afford, or maybe they're doubling up. How many of you have had topics with people about housing prices? I know recruiting for us has been a difficult problem. Housing prices all of a sudden become an individual, and we have a growing organization. We want to grow right here in Colorado. So how do we have a blueprint for Colorado housing development? We took on that challenge, and we had two people of varying opinions come in one with an R, one with a D, and say, hey, how do you solve the issue? Now, we're saying, here it is, Colorado, work with it if you can. We did the same thing with regards to transportation. And more recently, I think some of you have already heard about the criminal justice report that we released by George Brockler and Mitch Morrissey. I don't know about you, but it was stunning how Colorado this incredible, pristine place that we all came to could have some of the issues that it has today. And I don't know, it just seems common sense to me that some of these are just avoidable. There's a blueprint. We identified it, just like we did in homeless. We identified the homeless issue. We said, do you realize we're spending 44000 to $102,000 per homeless person? It blew people away. It got national attention. The result was, guess what? There's some discussion about it at local level, state level, and it's a healthy discussion. That's what we're all about. These are real issues facing Coloradans with potential consequences, and we're also trying to present solutions like we did on the Para report. We said we have 28 to $31 billion deficit with Para. We didn't stop with that. 
we said, hey, here's four or five ways you can handle the issue. And the result was we action down at the state legislature. Truth is, most policy ideas in our country, good or bad, do not originate in Washington, D.C. By the way, that's not original. A Frenchman told us that. Anybody want to guess who that is? De Tocqueville, 1834. He toured the country. He said it doesn't happen back in Washington. It happens right here in the local area. Well, they start closer to home. We know that. And that's why we're working on it here in Colorado at the present time. We think we're having a real impact. We think our local issues and solving will have actually national world impact. But we can't do all of this without your support. And thank you for many of you in this room who have helped us grow the organization to where we are and the support you've given us. Today is another milestone. Kristen, you're going to start it off in a few minutes. The Free Enterprise Report and the Rankings Book. I went through the Rankings Book last night. It's really fascinating. I encourage you. It doesn't take long to go through it. Give yourself half hour, 45 minutes. Go through it, see where Colorado is. You'll be surprised. There are some issues that we're looking at. You say, wait a minute, why are we even looking at that issue? And that's we just want to you know, elevate ourselves a little bit higher where we already are. And there are other issues that are saying, wait a minute, how, can we get, how could we be ignoring this issue uh, in light of ways in which this could be solved that have some really common sense associated with it? It's community leaders like you that we want to give this information to. And it's community leaders like you that we think will go out and talk to your various you know, commissioner, legislator, governors, lieutenant governors, get people elected to office. It's you that are going to go out and take these reports and do something with them. And through that, we think free enterprise is going to flourish here in Colorado. It's now my pleasure to introduce Christian Strom, the president, CEO of C CSI, the mover and shaker, I say, of making things done. She's a leading voice of free enterprise, economic opportunity in Colorado, and she has had a very successful career in small businesses, I think many of you know. She's an incredible public policy advocate, and she's also very active in the field of philanthropy. Christian, thank you for your incredible leadership to date. Please come up. Kelly, could you go to the next slide? The clicker's dead. Um, well, as Earl said, this really, this has been 11 years in the making, which is so thrilling to see you all here. This concept of launching a free enterprise summit, we've been working all, all year long. And really, to me, it's a chance to bring free enterprise back to the forefront of the discussion. Too often it's missed. Today, Colorado does face a crossroad as it emerges from a long economic winter and works to reopen businesses support job creation, and regain a sense of normalcy for residents. As restrictions loosen, people return to their everyday lives, Coloradans must grapple with how best to steer the state forward and continue to grow. To me, to CSI, the answer is the same as it has always been. Embrace the principles of the free enterprise system. 
In times of immediate crisis, people naturally look to lawmakers for decisive action and leadership. But as the state moves onward, one constant throughout history has been that individuals working to provide for their families, as well as businesses striving to meet the needs of their community, together and free from intrusive oversight, lead to fuller bellies, bigger paychecks, and greater economic prosperity. A return to these principles can help lead the state through the challenges ahead and back to the full potential. At its heart, the free enterprise system is one in which people are free to make choices about what is best for their own particular circumstances and needs. Individuals are free to work in roles that play to their strengths. Businesses can compete to provide goods and services that cater to their customers. And markets are able to bring people together to transact. Those countless decisions and interactions, when taken collectively, make up the free enterprise system, which has proven to be the greatest economic engine in history and has lifted billions of people out of extreme poverty. Recognizing that power, Common Sense Institute was founded, as Earl alluded to, 10 years ago, 11 now, to champion Colorado's economy and to be an educational resource for Coloradans providing rigorous research on the impacts of policies, initiatives, and laws that ultimately shape all of our lives. CSI's mission is to provide Coloradans with the resources they need to make informed decisions about the future for their life and their families, and the state by helping to ground policy discussions with sound fiscal and economic research. Though Colorado's lawmakers may largely agree on worthy and beneficial goals for the state, getting people back to work, improving access to quality health care, or even strengthening the education system, the open question is always which policies will achieve the, those goals most effectively, efficiently, and above all, without economic distortion. And that's where CSI comes in. We help public and policymakers answer those questions. Now for over 11 years, and we've enjoyed every minute. Next slide. Before we get to the program, I'd like to introduce CSI's board of directors. Our board is comprised of committed individuals who all care deeply about making Colorado a better place to live. It's an honor to work with all of you. Could you just wave real quickly? I'd also like to thank our members and donors in the room today. As Earl said, without your support, we could not do what we do. We're a nonprofit. If you are interested, it's your in giving time in making a tax-deductible contribution. Please see Cree Senich, who's our director of development. As where's Charlie McNeil? As Charlie McNeil says, "No money, no mission." So. Lastly, I just want to thank Amazon. Thanks for being here today. And thank you for your generous sponsorship of all of these events this year and all of our exit in the economy. You've been a wonderful partner. And I also would be remiss if we didn't extend our prayers to the Amazon family in Edwardsville after the tragedy this week. Since its inception, CSI has studied the impacts of individual policy proposals in the legislature, ballot measures, or quite simply, just those big issues that everybody's talking about at the kitchen table. But at today's event, it's about a new venture, launching our annual review of the State Free Enterprise Report in Colorado and how it may be impacted by broader policy trends. 
This report that you can find at your tables and also online at our website, Colorado's Free Enterprise Report, the 2022 edition. We'll go through that in detail in a moment, but I wanna thank Lori Laprino and Matt Laprino um, for endowing a fellowship, the Mike Laprino Fellowship. Without your support, this report would not have been possible, so thank you. You'll notice that the report is accompanied by the rankings book, which you'll find at your seat. The rankings book includes key statistics and rankings showing where Colorado stands relative to other states. There are over 57 distinct rankings in the book. As the state looks towards the future, CSI stands ready to be part of the conversation and help Colorado to not only rebuild, but also forge a new path forward. One marked with more freedom, greater opportunity, and continued success. I wanna give a special thanks to Jim and Sally Knazer. I hope I said that correctly. Thank you so much for your vision and helping us put this book together. So you might be sitting there, I see some of you already diving into the book, it's a fun read. Um, but just a few of the indicators that you'll see in there, uh, housing prices, our regulatory policy score as a state, our prime age workforce, so dig away. There's lots of good interesting information in there. The book cites a variety of sources, preliminary, pri primarily national government departments and services. The most cited sources in the book are the Census Bureau, BLS, National Science Foundation, and then the Departments of Ed, Commerce, Labor, Energy, and Transportation. You'll note that on each table of the book, it indicates explicitly to which year the data does pertain. Thank you to our sponsors that helped with the printing of the book too. Many of you in this room really appreciate the support. Um, and now I would like to turn it over to our Vice President of Policy and Research, Chris Brown. Um, many of you know Chris. Prior to being with CSI, Chris ran the REMI, or Regional Economic Model Inc. office in Washington, D.C., and worked with a lot of different federal um, agencies on national policy issues. But I think most of us know Chris now as an expert on PARA, an expert on the public option, an expert on paid family leave, um, an expert now on crime. So Chris, I mean, he really wears a lot of hats, so I'm gonna let Chris walk us through the, the really reason why we're all here today, which is the Free Enterprise Report, and talk, us, talk to us about how we're doing as a state. Chris. Oh, and one last housekeeping thing. Um, we will take questions at the end of Chris's remarks. We have a roving mic that will come around, so if you do have a question at the end of Chris's remarks, just raise your hand and Cree will come find you. Okay, thank you, and thank you for that introduction. And I should say that anyone that claims to be an expert in all of that, you should be highly skeptical of. So not a good way to start a presentation, I'm sure, but, uh, but thank you. And it has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure uh, to participate in this work and really engage with you. It's, this is a, a, a different sort of uh, report than we've ever put out for a lot of reasons, and it's a little bit daunting sitting here talking to you about the free enterprise system, our outlook, our assessment of, of its performance, you know, given, you know, this room is filled with the innovators 
the you know people who are solving problems, deploying capital, educating our workforce, uh, running and serving in elected positions that create the laws that we all live within in our in this free enterprise system, and so I expect a lot of scrutiny and. Uh, and, and we welcome that, and welcome that debate, and getting into this, I think, was a big part of, of this report, was fostering this discussion around the, the free enterprise system. Um, we see this as a resource that you know, adds to the existing tools, the existing information that uh, is already out there, and, and the state is blessed with, with several very good resources that analyze and talk about our state's economy just last week, the uh, lead school of business at the University of Colorado released their annual economic outlook, which is a tremendous tool. Both the state governor's office, legislative council produce their economic forecasts. I think just yesterday, JJ, your organization released the Towards a More Competitive Colorado, the next iteration, which talks about the competitiveness of Colorado and the Denver Metro. And these are tremendous tools, and we wanted to you know, add to that. We see our role in this system really is analyzing the connection between policy and the economy. There's a lot of great work out there uh, forecasting and, and projecting and um, not a job that I'm necessarily looking to, 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 uh, to get into, but we wanted to have this debate and really feature the free enterprise system and, and have a resource for discussion. Really, the way I, best way I can say it is the rules of the game you know, are up for debate but uh, human flourishing really is the ultimate goal. You know, there's many different ways to look at this, and, and I think the starting point, two quotes really st stand out to me. Arthur Brooks, the former president of AEI, said, free enterprise is not just a formula for wealth creation, but life satisfaction. President Obama uh, s reiterated sim a similar sentiment, saying, I believe that the free enterprise system is the greatest engine of prosperity the world has ever known. And while our state and our country is very much rooted in the free enterprise system, we must not really lose sight of the principles or the trends that ultimately might be leading us astray. And so this leads us to our work here. And again, thank you to the Laprino family for, again, supporting us and supporting this and really embodying that entrepreneurial and free enterprise spirit. So enough, enough there. And I, I'm going to, in the interest of time and getting to questions uh, and also to force you to read the report, I will keep some uh, remarks brief on these, these key topics, but wanted to give you a scan of, of, of what we found and, and the issues that we wanted to, to highlight. What we did is, is ask the question, where are we and where do we see uh, our state going across the eight different policy areas that we uh, prioritize within our research, that align with our research uh, objectives. So you'll see the performance and outlook rating across those eight, those eight areas. The performance rating is, is simply an assessment of, of where do we see the data, where do we see the uh, performance of these areas um, in the history, and, and where do we see the outlook? Do we see that performance improving, remaining about the same, or uh, uh, declining in some, in some way? And, and give a little bit of a, uh, again, a, an assessment of, of why that might be. So as we look at our, our ratings, three of the eight categories have a rating of four. Three of the uh, eight categories have a rating of, of three. 
two, a reading of two, none at the uh, back of the class or uh, really in front. And so this is our first assessment across uh, the performance. The outlook uh, for four of the areas is negative. Uh, two are neutral and two are, uh, excuse me, one, one is, is positive. And I'll dive into each one of these as we, uh, and have a little bit of highlight of the, the information that we highlighted in discussing the policy, the research that we've done that helps inform this. But generally, as we look at the, the overall economy, the history, uh, save you know, the last year and a half, two years, has been a relatively strong economy, um, ranking very high in terms of overall labor, uh, labor force growth, job growth, uh, relatively high personal income, very low poverty rates. Um, however, there is a long way to go post-recovery, uh, and we have underlying cost issues. We highlighted the childcare cost issue here. Housing was discussed earlier that, um, as far as the outlook, uh, really, we think, challenged the overall outlook to, to sustain the performance we've seen uh, in the last several years. And so, at the moment, the, the outlook due to sort of increasing costs, direct costs, indirect costs, um, the lingering effects of the pandemic, the outlook is negative. We've tracked the economic performance every month. You know, our projection or our estimate for uh, Colorado would, would, we would need to see uh, about 9,100 jobs added on, on average over the next year in order to recover to pre-pandemic levels in terms of an employment to population adjusted ratio. Some of the forecasts we're seeing, the, the, the outlook that I mentioned that just was released last week puts that annual average growth rate, uh, growth level at about 6,100 jobs. So not at a level that we would recover fully to prior to pre-pandemic levels. You know, this year there will be 60,000, estimate of more than 60,000 more Coloradans unemployed than we had in 2019. And so we still have a long way, a long way to go to, to, to reach full recovery. Scanning education, uh, we have a very highly skilled and educated workforce. We have challenges within our uh, graduation rates, uh, and that's been something that's been highlighted not just by us, but by other research as well. Generally, Colorado has a strong K-12 system that does promote competition choice um, generally. And uh, talking about some of the work that one of our uh, fellows did and one of our contributors uh, did around, specifically around charters, looking at outcomes showed disproportionate you know, benefits uh, of, of charter schools and uh, specifically as it relates to students of color and their performance um, relative to, to non-charter schools. So these principles are strong in many ways. However, the outlook, particularly as it relates to the cost of higher education, um, uh, is, is, is neutral. Don't see, we see funding increases. We see historic levels of funding that should be sustained with recent policy, we would expect. And so funding looks to be at, uh, again, historic levels, uh, but without seeing some of the structural changes in the, in the formula that we've identified in our work, our dollars and data research, um, and the continuing you know, issues with the cost of higher education, don't see that trajectory necessarily changing in terms of the overall performance. Um, I'm gonna skip this one as we can get to questions on uh, interest of time here. 
If we look at our next area, energy and our environment, this is one where the recent performance has, we think, lagged. Uh, historically, Colorado has been a, a, uh, a state that is a top producer in natural resources. The, the re immediate history has been that has fallen behind, both because of you know, national trends, national markets, um, and, and local policy. Uh, we face significant issues, you know, follow, again, following national trends related to energy prices. But when we get into the outlook, I think the, the overwhelming sort of element that we wanted to discuss and, 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 and help uh, Coloradans really understand is this, we, due to recent policy, particularly the emission targets that we now have, as it impacts the free enterprise system, this is creating a high level of uncertainty as it relates to economy-wide policy, not just the energy development, but um, price levels that we might expect, how investments have to be made. Um, this is going as far as impacting uh, large businesses or all businesses through the potential regulation we saw that was, was ultimately pulled in terms of mandating employee trips to work. So when we look at the energy-related policy, this is going beyond just um, resource extraction, energy production, but it's really impacting uh, you know, economy-wide, all businesses, households, that is, is a high level of uncertainty, simply because the current projections are we're not uh, probably on track to meet the aggressive targets from 2030, 2050 that will likely prompt greater and greater uh, regulatory changes from uh, policymakers to try to achieve those targets. And we think that that is, is creating a large challenge for our state. Our research around particularly around building emissions and mandates around building emissions, we think uh, highlighted that. Moving on to healthcare, uh, again, historically have had relatively high performance as it relates to health, as it relates to the system. Uh, there are challenges, in, in certainly in terms of cost and prices, and the outlook here is negative largely because, again, if we talk about policy as it relates to the impacts on the free enterprise system, what we are largely seeing is changes related to price controls and price setting um, and further subsidization, which, which remove a lot of the principles of competition in a free enterprise system that, uh, again, we think really challenge the outlook. And, and we've done a lot of work around this as it relates to the public option and the debate that we, um, uh, has been, was, was going on for several years and featuring the extent to which when we see increased th through subsidization, public subsidization or price regulation, that this is going to put further pressure on private consumers uh, through, through additional cost sifting, cross subsidization, uh, on, on costs that we think is, is again, important, important to highlight and, and consider as part of the policy, policy discussion. Housing and our community uh, really looks at a couple key issues impacting, I think, in one, one of the more critical areas. Earl mentioned our work with our uh, um, Terry J. Stevenson fellows this year to produce a housing analysis that looked at not just the current issue, but as, as Earl said, a blueprint for getting us out of one of the most challenging problems that exists for, for all businesses, for all policymakers, and that is a significant housing shortage, a, a severe supply constraint 
which is manifesting in, in rapidly increasing prices, outpacing incomes, that is challenging um, economic mobility, that is challenging that system of entrepreneurship and innovation and disruption, and, and something that we think everyone needs to be very uh, uh, mindful of and, and really all hands on deck in terms of how do we, how do we get out of this. Um, along with the housing issue, We've also studied, as, as Earl mentioned, the issue of homelessness, and just as of last week, released a, uh, an analysis related to the costs of crime and the changes we've seen in the criminal justice system. And so the, the current performance we would rate relatively low. The outlook is neutral. We don't see any substantive or, or very disruptive policy changes as it relates to the issues and the supply constraints. There's large challenges with that being distributed across many different markets. It's not just a central um, you know, entity that is, has control over those policy levers, and that really challenges it. However, don't see any major disruption there. We are seeing, uh, again, we'll go back to the outlook just released, uh, you know, a, 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 a good increase in housing starts, about 46, 48,000, I think, was the projection. However, that still doesn't reach the level that we think is needed in order to get back to uh, a, a reasonable level of homes to the current population, our projected population. We estimate we would need more than 50, uh, 54,000 new homes built every year for the next five years to reach a level of housing to population that we saw historically prior to the financial crisis. And until this problem is really you know, significantly addressed, this will be a constant problem uh, and issue for, for, for Coloradans. On the issue of, of homelessness, there is a, an increasing uh, amount of public expenditure going to this issue and a growing problem. And, and we wanted to ensure that that gets highlighted. The dollars, as, as Earl mentioned, range between uh, 40 and over $104,000 per individual experiencing homelessness. We expect that that number, or we project that number to increase uh, significantly in the next year as the governor has prioritized, expect, you know, more than $200 million out of the state, but uh, requested more than $200 million out of the state budget. Um, the, the city of Denver's budget has increased. Federal dollars are, will continue to go to this issue for the next um, several years, and so want to ensure that these this these dollars are being spent in in a way that is actually going to change uh, the trajectory of this problem uh, going forward. Just a, a few snapshots on our issue and the report we released last week related to crime. You know, and I I've, this has been sort of the only way I can I can get my head around it. But you know, six I guess four months ago when we first started this work. I would have never expected the total cost of crime, both intangible costs and intangible costs, to be more than $27 billion uh, in, in the state of Colorado. We replicated a national study that estimated the total cost nationally to be more than $2.6 trillion. And so on a sh as a share, this number is actually lower than that national report, largely because we didn't have the same information on related juvenile crimes. However, it is a, a large cost both to victims and to society, to communities, to businesses, and we highlight some pathways, pathways out of this. Uh, moving on to infrastructure, 
this is one where we rated a, a, a three, and there is a lot of different aspects and dimensions to infrastructure that uh, fall into this. When you, when you look at one of the largest pieces of that debate, particularly uh, transportation-related infrastructure, um, we have a relatively sort of lower level amount of spending. The, the, the ratings we've seen and the grades we've seen from the um, national uh, uh, report put us uh, at a C minus. And so that performance has been relatively low, commute times increasing, uh, costs increasing, and the outlook is negative, uh, neutral. Excuse me. We, we have seen some significant changes both in federal policy, state policy that will increase spending, increase investment. Um, however, something that again uh, relates back and overlaps with the energy issue, there are going to be large challenges because of these overarching energy and emission regulations to investing and developing new capacity. And, and there's a lot of depth and detail in there, and many of you in the room are, are following those regulations as they're moving through right now. Um, as we look at the state budget, this was one of the loan, uh, or the loan positive outlook. We currently rate it as a three uh, in terms of its historic performance. The outlook is, is positive. Um, and when we, when we try to understand the, the current performance, the overall budget has rebounded rel relatively well from the pandemic. We are reaching uh, new all-time highs. There's a significant amount of large federal support um, some of the large issues related to para have been somewhat resolved, at least at the moment, don't uh, have, they're not projected to be the same issues we saw in years past. And the outlook is, is one where this probably had the most amount of debate and discussion internally and with a lot of stakeholders and our fellows. Uh, but we landed on a positive outlook primarily because, again, there is a substantial reserve that the state was able to uh, build back as a result of both federal dollars and rebounding state revenue. We have projections of TABOR refunds, which mean we are growing at a level beyond population and inflation, which is a positive in terms of overall dollars. Um, there is a proposal to repay a portion of the federal loan and the outstanding costs of the unemployment insurance uh, uh, trust fund. And so we think that this is a historic opportunity for Colorado and the budget to invest in the future, and so rated this as, as a positive. Um, no tomatoes here. No, not yet. Okay, I was waiting if that one was coming. Um, and, you know, one of our, if, if you're interested, one of the great pieces of work we do is on the Colorado budget then and now, which is a, an annual release we produce. Kelly, I don't know if you can hit click and I'll just maybe continue talking, but you can find this animation on our website. Just wanted to feature this as, as uh, one of the, the pieces of, of, of work that we produce that looks at a snapshot of our state budget now, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This tracks total expenditures across each state agency as it changes over the last, again, 20 years, as it has changed over the last 20 years. And again, provides some insight into that history um, that helped inform that performance um, and then, you know, really key for those debates going forward. And finally, taxes and fees. Uh, historically, we have been a relatively low tax, low uh, cost state, relatively, not necessarily the lowest, but relatively low cost, low tax state. Um, although we do have increasing direct costs, primarily as it relates to fees, 
Um, we, as, as the video in the beginning mentioned, sort of highlighted more than $1.8 billion in new taxes and fees that will be coming on over the next two to three years here in the, in the state. Uh, the growing property tax burden that was not included in that figure but will, will certainly increase uh, as you know, we, we received new assessments. Um, we have large debates as it relates to whether to tax, you know, see rate cuts versus rate increases, which again is providing a lot of uncertainty. Um, but Tabor and Proposition 117 really are unique tools that do, you know, uh, limit growth to some extent, uh, allowing for growth, allowing for voter engagement in where dollars are spent, but are unique tools that our state has that really do have a dramatic impact um, uh, on, on, on the system uh, of government. So as I said, in this, this work we've released now twice, but following the 2021 legislative, legislative session identified more than $300 million in new taxes and fees uh, in reforms uh, that would bring the total cost to more than 2.1 uh, again in the next couple of years. And this is really where we generated this idea of looking not just at individual issues and reporting and analyzing policy one-off, but rather looking in aggregate at the system and producing this report um, that would help inspire and, and foster debate. So where do I want to leave you? You know, ultimately the findings of this report should be seen as indicating that ultimately there are challenges. We identify challenges and think that there are challenges to the system. However, you know, truthfully and truly the system, the foundation of the Colorado economy, the workforce of Colorado is, is strong. And while the outlook might be negative in some ways, we are starting from a very good point in many ways. Um, and we think it's just important to highlight those changes. And as you know, the free enterprise system has proven time and time again that we should be optimistic, you know, ultimately about the ability to adapt and overcome many of these challenges. You know, again, I, but I think we cannot lose sight, as I said at the beginning, we cannot lose sight of the principles ultimately that got us here and the trends, you know, that might lead us astray. So with that, I would like to open it up for questions and thank you for your time and continued engagement in these critical issues. And I look forward to many, you know, future conversations about our work and, and this issue in the years to come. And I think Cree has the microphone. So if you wanted to raise your hand, we can uh, try to take questions. We are recording this for audio, just a disclaimer uh, as well, if that changes your, your question, I don't know, but just, you know, uh, we have, you know, two-party consent state here, so uh, please. Thank you. That was excellent, very clear. Regarding the state budget, you mentioned that we had a healthy reserve. Does that mean that money has been put into what was formerly called a rainy day fund? Um, yes, it's funds that have been set aside that will be uh, serve as a reserve against the general fund for future years, correct? Yes. Chris, yes. just a quick comment and then a question. And first, uh, congratulations to CSI Earl and Kristen on this groundbreaking work that you've done uh, I love the objectivity of it. Um, it is truly enlightening. Um, I like to ask the magic wand question, right, which is if I were to hand, hand you a magic wand and ask you where to start, 
what are the one, two, or three policy uh, prescriptions that you would offer uh, as would have, having the biggest impact on Colorado? Uh, no pressure. Uh, that'll be in next year's report. No, um, I keep asking my wife for a magic wand too, but I'm glad you give it to me. Um, I, you know, I, I think I, I, I truly what what I think we see is it relates to to particularly say housing or the most uh, challenging areas in affordability and cost. It's not any one thing, and I think we saw this in crime. And this is not maybe a give me another day and they'll give you a better answer, but it's really not any one thing. And we see an aggregation of policy that is leading to these unintended consequences of higher costs, uh, uh, less innovation, um, you know, less capital coming in, uh, less risk. And, and I think that is the challenge is it's, is it's, any one policy might be well-intentioned or, or, or be looked at in isolation, but when you, you think about the aggregation of policy, of layering of cost, both from, from federal changes, national, international changes, with, with local policy, it really creates a lot of the underlying, you know, manifests in the trends that we see. So I don't have a, a one solution for you, but I think it's the overall trend we see in policy that is, that is not enabling the system of innovation and the free enterprise system, but rather trying to control it more and, and leading to these, these um, constraints that are, that are having these disproportionate effects across, across our state. So uh, I think that's really, and again, where we want to bring this discussion is when you're engaging with legislators, engaging with policymakers, you know, consider how each issue might play into the bigger picture. Another question? Uh, so in light of the attacks on Tabor, um, it seems that Colorado has been kept kind of in competitive range just because of that. What can we do to help further the policies that are around the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and what, in, as we're talking to our state legislators and even our, at the county level where they're trying to de-Bruce? It's an interesting question. I, I think when I look at the, the and very frankly, you know, we, we see a, a pending policy debate around what to do, not just with Tabor, but these excess funds, I think I think one of the nice things about Tabor is that it forces that conversation. Um, and I think the more information we can get voters about what the history has been, about what the sort of underlying challenges are, the, the better. So I think, it, it, truthfully, I think it's an education that, that I, might, I might fall back on is really people need to really understand the truth and the, the changes we've seen from a budgeting standpoint, from a revenue standpoint, and when we see revenue hit up against Tabor limits, when we see these excess, understand that there's an opportunity to, to either refund them, to further invest them in some way. But that conversation is unique in Colorado and something I think Coloradans really should, um, you know, should not take for granted. So I don't, it's, it's you know, it's in conversations, education, it's letting individuals know um, really how, how unique this is and, and, and why it provides a lot of opportunity um, 
you know, for, for our, for, for the state, you know, going forward. So it's, it's, it's again, maybe not a, uh, uh, an easy question to answer, but I do think it's, it's a unique opportunity over the next six months that we'll see the debate really hash out. Okay, one more. Kareem, your choice. Um, I looked at the education section. I think you should probably add something related to home-based education because nationally we saw an increase to about 11% of children um, educated at home. And supposedly that tracks with Colorado, which would put it about um, 88,000 to 90-something thousand students. And um, that saves about $500 million a year for state taxpayers. So I think that if you maybe added that in, your outlook could be a little bit better. I think it's something you should probably track considering that about 11% of students. That's a 10%, um, yeah. Yeah, so. Thank you. Very much noted. So it wasn't a question. Did we do one more? We see a hand. One more. Sorry, Cree. <laughs> Kristen just gave me the... Uh, Thank button. you. Thank you. Um, we all saw in the paper uh, uh, this week, um, 73 million, if that number could be believed, waste, fraud, and abuse in the unemployment um, compensation system. Uh, and also, unless you're living under a rock, every single store you go into or pass by has a help wanted sign. So the question begs, to what extent is our unemployment compensation affecting the unemployment system? Nobody applying for a job. <laughs> I think next time we do this, we're not taking hard, only easy questions, guys. Only easy questions. Um, yeah, it's, you know, another one we did not specifically feature. I think a lot of that, I, again, I could be wrong, and maybe this is good questions that the panel can address that are very knowledgeable in this, uh, frankly. So that might be a good, a good one to, uh, to pass on to the panel. Actually, maybe I'll do that. I see some maybe, you know, nodding, maybe some shaking, but we'll, we'll pass it on. Thank you so much for the time, and we'll get back to you. All right. Okay, we are going to change it up now and have a little bit of a panel discussion with some of the leading voices on free enterprise and business in our state. Um, I'd like to first introduce the free enterprise moderator for today, Vince Bizdek with the Gazette. He has, I, I don't know if you just read his latest editorial that he wrote on crime, but if you haven't, you need to check it out. He's a Colorado native, editor of the Gazette. He spent nearly 18 years as a writer and editor at the Washington Post. Before that was an editor for several years at the Denver Post. He's also written for the Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, and appeared on MSNBC C-SPAN as well. So Vince, welcome. Come on up. And then I'm going to introduce the rest of the panelists real briefly. A reminder to panelists, turn your mics on so that we can hear you once you're up on stage. Um, so JJ, we'll start with you. JJ Ament is the new president and CEO of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, a leading voice for Colorado's business community. He has experience in the private, public, nonprofit sectors, and he brings a unique experience to the role. JJ, welcome. Thank you. 
Next, Tom Brook. Tom became president and CEO of Denver South in the spring of 2019. He began his professional career as a CPA. Since the early 2000s, Tom has worked in the scale-up and startup space in Denver in a variety of roles for approximately 20 companies. Tom, thank you for joining us. Debbie Brown. Debbie serves as the president of the Colorado Business Roundtable, which is a coalition of CEOs and executives from academia, business, community, and government that amplifies the voice of business as a force for good in our community. As the state affiliate of the National Business Roundtable, she works together on issues that promote sound public policy in a thriving community. Debbie, welcome. Lauren Furman. Lauren is the new president and CEO. We have a lot of news. This is exciting. Is the new president and CEO of the Colorado Chamber. In 2012, she was named as one of Colorado's most influential women. Lauren has a diverse background of government affairs, tax, and labor and employment. Lauren, welcome. And last but not least, a CSI board member, Dave DeVia. Dave is the EVP and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. He is a passionate leader with a diverse background in public and private organizations. He has a strong track record of accomplishments in strategic partnerships, government relations, process development, coalition building, business and legislative analysis. Is there anything you don't do? I'm proud to say, as I mentioned before, that he's also a board member of CSI. Dave, welcome. Thanks very much, Kristen. Great to be here. Everybody hear me okay? Um, appreciate you being here. Uh, it's nice to have the Denver Gazette here. I really appreciate all the support we've gotten from the business community in this town as we've launched this new newspaper to really try to provide a different voice in, in Denver and also do a lot of accountability journalism, ask the hard questions, as Myron suggested, in Denver, and uh, appreciate all you've done to support that effort. Uh, I'd like to start by saying it's 100 years ago, we were in, we were in a similar time in the United States um, where there was a pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic, after that pandemic, there was so much pent up entrepreneurial energy and willingness to go out and get together again among the people that we had the roaring 20s. And I noticed that it's the 20s again, so we can only hope. Uh, so anyway, I'd like to just jump right in. We're gonna skip any sort of opening statements since Kristen's introduced everybody and just get into it. And then I have about 10, 12 questions and then we'll turn it over to you guys for some more questions. I'd like to start with Dave. Um, Dave, as a board member of CSI, CSI, why do you believe this report is so critical to our state and policymakers moving forward right now? Well, thanks, Spence. I did. There we go. Nope. Sorry. I'll move it up a little bit. Can you hear me? All right. Um, so thanks, Spence, for having us. Thanks, Christian, for all, Christian, for all you do for CSI. Um, and thanks, Chris. I, I don't know how he gets his optimism. Uh, looking at data all day makes me want to bang my head here. 
but he comes up with such vim and vigor. So thank you. Um, so why is this report important to my members and our mission? Uh, with good data comes good decisions. Uh, and I think in the last number of years, we've been plagued by a bunch of decisions that have been concocted by well-intended people, uh, but the outcome of that has been bad data, bad decisions, uh, or limited data. Um, and certainly no disparaging on anyone in that regard. A lot of different economic models are out there. A lot of different eco-devos help us to inform what goes on in this region. But I think CSI's report gives us a chance to take a look at entrepreneurialism uh, and helps us to look at free enterprise differently in this state than we ever have. Uh, I think that having that pocket size, one of the things when we started envisioning this is they said, boy, this would be really good if we made it pocket size so we could stick it in a pocket or a purse or a portfolio and be able to go down to the Capitol as we, those of us who engage in public policy, um, are able to refer to and we're able to point to, okay, here's the policy decision you're making or that we're contemplating. Here are the facts. Here's what this means to our state. And all we want to see on that chart next year is more thumbs up uh, and uh, less thumbs down. And certainly that neutral or stuck in neutral is something that we don't want to see. And so I think uh, CSI took this on. I'm excited to be a part of it and be a passenger on the bus. Uh, but I think having good decisions is going to help, our good data is going to help us make much better decisions. Thanks, Dave. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot right away because that's what I do. Uh, there are a lot of big issues facing Colorado. One is solving the homelessness crisis, I think. CSI did a terrific report not too long ago that we spend more than $500 million annually on homelessness in Colorado. Um, can you tell me... Um, Tell us a little bit about the issue and potential paths forward. Sure. Um, putting me on the spot was putting the big guy in the middle. Yeah. So exactly. that was number one. So I guess this is number two. Um, so, you know, homelessness is something that, uh, you know, we can do better. Uh, I have been involved with homelessness uh, since uh, mid-90s. I took a leave of absence from my former employer uh, to put together a homelessness transitional housing uh, project. It's something I'm very passionate about. When I was on city council, uh, it was one of my uh, kind of issues and platform items. Um, all we need to do is just drive around our great city. I'm a fifth generation Denver native, uh, and we know that there's no correlation to the amount of money we're spending and better outcomes. You know, compare that to transportation. If you drive around and you hit a pothole or you see aging infrastructure, you see spending, you feel that it's going to get better. Um, and I don't know what the answer is and the solution is, but the leadership uh, or the priorities that have been made from a public policy perspective, either at the state or at the local levels, is not really producing better results. We see more folks in homelessness encampments sitting along uh, our, our uh, waterways and pathways. Um, and so I really, um, I really uh, applaud CSI for taking on this tough issue. Uh, when we're spending twice as much for uh, supporting a homelessness individual than we are for educating our K-12 students, uh, that should be an alarm bell that should go off for each one of us. When we are spending, uh, when we have a, one, uh, 
uh, 10 volunteer to one homelessness individual ratio, that should be another alarm bell. There is no correlation in my mind, in my personal view, uh, to spending more money has different outcomes. Homelessness, in my opinion, is a symptom. Um, and until we take a step back and look at things like mental health, substance abuse, and other contributing factors to the overall epidemic that is homelessness, we're not going to be able to solve for it. Um, and there's a couple of things I think we can uh, really focus on as it relates to homelessness, and, and that is solving for or providing access in more of a wraparound way for folks experiencing homelessness and bring some compassion to the, the problem versus a transactional uh, solution. I think that's where we're falling down. Thanks, Nick. Um, and let me encourage our panelists to jump in if they have added thoughts on a certain topic. We, we, we'd like this to be as much of a conversation as possible. My next question is for Lauren. Lauren, we consider you one of the leading pro-business voices down at the Capitol. What is in store for the 2022 legislative session? Thank Anything you. specific that could harm free Ooh. enterprise? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Vince, for the question. And I do want to do a shout out for CSI. I mean, your organization is amazing. The data you put together really helps those of us that are working in public policy um, prove the arguments on behalf of employers and how certain policies impact them across the state. Um, Vince, we're still recovering from the last 18 months and five sessions stuffed into that period. So I know we have some legislators here in the room, but uh, this is a friendly crowd. So I would just say that I think we're hoping for some restraint in the next legislative session. But I do know that there are a couple issues that are coming that we're keeping our eyes on and that we need to be very mindful of how they impact employers across the state, specifically the E-TRIP program. When we deal with energy and environment issues, we've seen this issue come during the summer through some rulemaking that was defeated during the summer through a group of employers across the state and the business community came out against it, but it will come back. Nothing is dead down at the Capitol. And so um, this will be some kind of legislation mandating some E-TRIP or employee uh, reduction program, commuting reduction program uh, for employees. It'll start with state employees and then it'll trickle down to the private sector. And I think what um, some of the sponsors and proponents need to still understand, and they have conveyed that they want to work with the business community, they have to understand that mom needs to pick up or drop off their kid you know, at school or at daycare, so they do need to have an easy way to commute. And if um, they don't live in the metro area, they don't have access to eco passes, that's gonna be a problem. So those are the conversations we're gonna have with the sponsors of the bill that will be coming during the legislative session. Uh, the second issue isn't new to the business community. Uh, we'll see another workplace harassment discrimination bill. This bill was defeated in the final days of the legislative session, but this is some legislation to allow for workers to bring lawsuits against employers for claims of workplace harassment or discrimination, which nobody is trying to defend in the employer community, but it's all how the words on paper are written. How does it impact employers? For instance, it included independent contractors. Independent contractors aren't deemed as traditional employees, but with legislation like this and the way that it was proposed, it would have allowed an independent contractor to bring a lawsuit 
for discrimination, harassment against an employer. So these are the types of things that the employment community and the business community is working on to try to improve. So we'll see a bill coming again on that issue. And then finally, we will see some legislation from the labor unions that will attempt to mandate collective bargaining on uh, local governments and quasi-local governments and anybody that contracts with those entities. And the concern from the business community is if there's success in doing that type of proposal and that passes, who's to say that the labor unions won't come after the private sector and try to unionize the private sector and undo the Labor Peace Act that's been in place for decades. So those are some of the issues that we're gonna be seeing this session. Lauren, you made me think of another question. We've, uh -oh. done, we've done some reporting on how much discretion the governor has over pandemic relief funds mm -hmm. uh, for business as well. How do you think he's doing? You know, we hope he's going to do really well with his proposal for unemployment insurance, uh, backfilling the unemployment insurance trust yeah. fund, because he has proposed a $600 million funding proposal to backfill that deficit. I know we had a question earlier on this issue. This is a huge issue for the employment community. We're talking about premium increases of 0.0% up to 13% of wages. So if the legislature doesn't support the governor's proposal, who's going to be impacted? Every single employer across the state, not those that just laid off employees during the pandemic, everyone. So we need the legislature to support that proposal. So I would say he has an opportunity to be successful. Great, thanks. JJ, congratulations on your new position with the Thanks. chamber. <clears throat> In your former position as head of the Metro Denver EDC, you tracked a lot of great data on Colorado's competitiveness. What stands out from your perspective hearing this report today and also considering your monthly economic report and competitive Colorado report? Thanks, Vince, and thanks again for having us. I think what stands out to me is the impact that policy can have on data. And, and if we don't start to measure these things, it's impossible to track or change any of them. So I commend the report, the work that economic development groups around the state do to try to provide policymakers with these details, because this economy doesn't just happen by accident. And I feel like recently we've gotten a little bit complacent as a state of having it so good for so long. Uh, COVID has helped awaken us of what happens to communities when you just turn off the private sector and economy and just shut industries down in response to a health emergency. And let's be clear, that's what happened here. This was a health emergency. Our response to the health emergency created the economic crisis. It was not an economic crisis like we'd have seen in 08, 2000, the 1930s. So that was the response to that. But this economy doesn't happen by accident. Remember in the 1980s, we led the nation in business failures. Uh, more people were leaving Colorado than were moving to it. You could have driven 70 miles an hour down from Union Station to the Capitol building on 17th Street at 7 o'clock at night and not worried about hitting anybody. And we said, hey, we're going to change this. And we did it on purpose. And it was a collaboration between the private sector and our partners in all levels of government. And we've lost some of that collaborative spirit. And, and we've created sort of sides. And we, I talk a lot about how do, we, how do we cram some space back between utopia and the apocalypse, um, because that's where our public dialogue and discourse takes place. Data, to me, helps do that. And data provides that nuance that gets lost too much in our public policy discussions. And so it matters. And we see the impact. And we see it every day at the Economic Development Corp and the Chamber, because we're actually talking to businesses who are here about how we're going to help them stay here and expand and grow. 
and we're talking to businesses that are elsewhere about whether they should move to Colorado for that next expansion or whether it should be in Utah, Phoenix, or Texas. And so we see it firsthand, the impact that policy can have on the economy. And so the more data we have that we can provide to policymakers to provide some of that nuance in the decision making is really important. Great, thanks. You know, speaking of collaborative efforts, Debbie, um, last year, uh, Colorado Business Roundtable partnered with CSI on a year-long project called the Road to Recovery. Can you tell us more about that project and what your business partners see as the biggest challenges and opportunities going into next year? the invitation today and I was just telling Kristen we were walking in I'm like gosh I miss you we spent many many months together bringing together uh, thought leadership from academia business community and government to try to lean in more during that time as JJ alluded to the response from the pandemic um, was shutting down businesses limiting education limiting things um, and so it was a chance for these thought leaders to come together with that report we focused around three different policy pillars. One was creating a competitiveness agenda, two was uh, reimagining tomorrow's workforce, and three was about focusing on infrastructure. And then different recommendations were put together. A lot of those, of course, are outdated now. There's been a lot of money spent in Colorado, a lot of money coming, a lot of decisions made since a year ago today. But what I'd love to focus on, um, I, I do appreciate the collaboration between Colorado Business Roundtable and CSI, and also excited to see the roles of JJ and Lauren both um, for the business community this coming year. And, it, and I think we're gonna have, I hope, a new collaborative spirit in Colorado on how we can come together to make sure that these unintended consequences, uh, you know, hopefully aren't felt for the long term, that we can um, have a really unified voice on what's good for business because we know that ultimately that's really good for people. Um, Vince, to your second part, kind of what we're looking at going forward, um, the Business Roundtable nationally just, just released a CEO outlook for 2022 on kind of the challenges um, and opportunities looking forward. And most of our um, partners are larger employers that have, uh, of course, a footprint here in Colorado, but also are focused on federal issues and to some degree international issues as well. And some of the big issues, of course, shouldn't be any surprise to everybody here, but um, concerns about labor costs, um, supply chain issues, of course, are some of the greatest pressures uh, concerned about inflation um, that we've seen. And, and frankly, um, you know, one of the bigger concerns right now in terms of federal policy is the potential for new corporate um, tax rates at the federal level. So we're, um, we had a call actually yesterday with Senator Hickenlooper expressed some concern about some of those changes that are coming down. and. Um, Definitely that layered with some of the new economic uncertainty and regulatory layers here in Colorado are causing um, more pressure for businesses to continue to hire and to grow. Um, what's, what's optimistic for some of our CEOs? I mean, definitely everybody's planning on hiring if they can find workers to take the jobs. There's, there's signs everywhere, you know, the, the fight for talent, of course, is one of the biggest issues we've seen for Colorado. Um, there, are, there are optimistic um, outlooks for some of these CEOs in this in this report, expectation for sales, projecting a larger GDP for 2022, and also plans for additional capital investment. So happy to send that report to anybody who might be interested, but um, you know, definitely a mixed bag as we're looking into the future. Um, to some degree, it's interesting, I, I love the fact that we're talking about free markets. You know, one of my questions has been to especially our congressional delegation is, at what point do we stop the spending? Uh, you know, we get that for a while there was maybe some needs to make sure safety nets were in place, some additional infrastructure perhaps, you could argue. 
but at what point do we stop the spending and let the free market churn its way back to life? And I would, I would say probably some of us um, in this room would say, let's, let's prioritize the free market over um, additional spending that we don't need. Hey, Debbie, a quick follow-up there. You know, we just did some reporting trying to answer the question, where did all the employees go? Because we're all looking for workers right now, right? <laughs> and um, one of the answers was a lot of them are starting their own businesses. We've had uh, a record amount of new business startups. You think that trend will continue? You think that has some uh, staying power? I think it could. You've heard, many of you have heard of the Great Resignation, the Great yeah. Reset. You know, I'm hearing other kind of re-words. Re <laughs> you know, that go into that. It is a reset to some degree. Um, workers have the chance to, and good for them, rethink what they want to do with their lives, rethink their quality of life, where they want to work, who they want to work for, what their priorities are. And, uh, you know, employers have to realize we're in that new dynamic. So it is, it is a shift and a, a new competition that'll never be the same. I sometimes think, I actually sit on the board of the Colorado Women's Chamber as well, and women's economic opportunity is really important to me. Um, what's interesting about what it's going to mean for women in the workforce, while they took a hit in terms of childcare, um, you know, schools not in session, that was harder on women, as, as a lot of the great reporting of CSI, I think going forward, this new flexibility in terms of workforce and talent will be really interesting, and one of the benefactors, I think, will be women, women in the workforce going forward. Great. Yeah, it does seem like the world has changed mm -hmm. permanently. Um, Tom, I'd like to go to you. I'd like to do a deep dive and get a little more specific on some of the policy areas uh, that we've identified. Denver South has been very involved in the infrastructure conversation. And this last year, we saw the legislature try to address some funding issues. How will this help your region and all of Colorado moving forward? Well, thanks, Vince. And I'd echo the rest of the panelists. Thanks to Earl and Kristen and Chris and the rest of the team at CSI. It's a, it's a huge asset for the region um, as far as bringing data forward to, to enrich the conversation and hopefully get us to a more level playing field. I think as, as we look at um, the transportation, we've been long advocates for improving the funding in transportation. Uh, we worked uh, extensively in, in the transportation bill back in 2018, unfortunately that was defeated. I do think that the Senate Bill 260 does bring some beginning of funding to that and helps to, to, to provide a, a platform with which to, to address our infrastructure. We've made um, collectively throughout the state a massive investment in infrastructure and it's critically important to the to the commerce, to our quality of life, um, whether we're going skiing up I-70 or bringing goods and, and goods and services in through DIA up I-25 on the trail on the rails, these are critical pieces of infrastructure that need um, have, have had significant investments in them, and we have to maintain them. Uh, so, first and foremost, is the maintenance of those pieces. Secondly, we are you know with the state gas tax not increasing in almost 40 years you look at this and we were a vastly different state than we were 40 years ago. So I think a big piece of it is to help, where do we, how do we deploy those resources to get to um, a more equitable distribution of those funds and address them where the, the congestion and the needs really are. The other piece that I put in there is I think it's, it's gonna be a multifaceted approach. The governor has clearly outlined um, electrification of the vehicle fleet, which I think is important. We met with Excel earlier in the week. Um, they're doing some great activities on working towards that electrification. Um, but there's not going to be a silver bullet answer here, as, as it's been alluded to a number of times in these issues. Uh, we think we're going to need a, a strong, we, we collaborate closely with RTD, and we think a, a, a strong public transit is going to be a vital component to this. Mm -hmm. As RTD looks at their piece and as the state looks at their resources, I think one of the things that RTD has to look at is, is to the cost to the, cost to the rider of the, of the transit has got to be addressed. There's going to be some creativity brought to bear there. 
Um, two is <coughs> the public safety, the recent report CSI did on crime. Um, transit is, is a primary piece of that, and I think we've got to be looking at that carefully. So those are a couple things that we need to look at as a state. Regionally, we are looking at um, a, a variety of things. We're trying to support that first and last mile as RTD looks to come back to the market. How do we provide, uh, so the train is great if I'm going from Union Station to my office, but if my office is a half mile or a mile down Bellevue, I need some way to get that last mile. So I can get the I-25 piece, but I need that last piece. So we continue to look there. We think there's some great innovative possibilities in there. Um, and we also continue to work um, collaboratively with our region to address the bigger projects, the, inter the interchanges, two of them being you know, Bellevue Avenue right here, um, is, is a big uh, congestion point. So to the extent we can improve those interchanges, we can begin to improve uh, traffic congestion and we can improve greenhouse gas, which is intermixed to almost every piece of our policy discussions these days. So those are just a couple of things that we're looking at. Yeah, and I drove up from Colorado Springs this morning and thank God for that new lane that's open to your The gap, yep. That's all they I did. They did a nice job with that. <clears throat> Um, Dave, I'd like to go back to you. Um, tell us a little bit about the new project you launched, Western States College of Construction, and how it helps to solve the shortage of skilled laborers across our state, and how this ties in with CSI's report. Sure, thanks. Um, so uh, early uh, November, we launched the Western States mm -hmm. College of Construction. Uh, it's really a byproduct of the road to recovery that we worked with Carter Business Roundtable on about reimagining tomorrow's workforce. Um, it's, no, uh, it, it's no secret that in the 80s and 90s, shop class, wood class, automotive, things like that were taken out of our K-12 system. Um, and so the visibility to the trades uh, was diminished. Um, the only way that someone would really learn about an opportunity and a career path in the trades was to have an uncle or an aunt or somebody in the profession um, we need 50,000 more workers in construction by 2028. Um, and so how are we going to do that? Um, we have 10 training centers that we work with, apprenticeship centers, and we're turning those into college campuses. We're in progress of doing that. We're seeking, a credit, or we're seeking authorization from the state. Uh, but the Western States College of Construction, when it is fully birthed, will have the ability for that apprentice <coughs> male or female, to come through the trades, be able to get their Department of Labor recognition, uh, in addition to a diploma, uh, showcasing all the years and hard work and hours of training that that individual has come through. Um, you know, you don't go to um, seek medical attention from somebody who doesn't have a credential. Why would you let somebody into your house to work on your boiler or your furnace or your hot water heater? that doesn't have those same credentials. Today we have those. Uh, those are recognized or issued by the Department of Labor. So our simple solution was to build a bridge between Department of Labor and Department of Ed and turn out more decorated individuals. They already have 17 to 19 credentials when they leave one of our training centers. And they've invested 9,740 training hours or contact hours as compared to a bachelor's degree, which is 5,400. Um, so they have the skills, we just haven't packaged it right. And our opportunities, once you come out of our program, you pay $1,000 over the course of your education, um, but you graduate with a $75,000, $78,000 year job. Uh, nowhere else uh, does that exist. And shame on us for not highlighting that better. And that's what Western States College of Construction will do. Great, great. 
Lauren, um, the governor's uh, fiscal year 22-23 budget proposal reflects the highest levels of spending in state's history. However, CSI's report pointed out there are still looming concerns, as you mentioned earlier, with the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund and an onslaught of increases in taxes and fees in the last years, several years. I wonder if you could talk a little more in depth about those taxes and fees and why we're seeing so many of them and what the business perspective might be on sure. it. Well, I think we have this unemployment insurance trust fund issue, billion dollar deficit that we've got to deal with and try to make sure that there's funding um, to backfill that deficit. And it, it really was created through a perfect storm. The thousands of claims that were made during the pandemic, $73 million in fraudulent claims. Um, there was a wage base increase piece of legislation that passed the early part of 2020 and nobody would have expected the pandemic that hit shortly thereafter. Um, plus the surcharges that are gonna hit employers for paying back the loans, the federal loans to pay those unemployment insurance claims. So it's this perfect storm on employers and everybody knows what happens when you increase in premiums on employers, wage, wages are gonna go down, obviously. Um, benefits are gonna go down. Costs on consumers are gonna go up. So we really need to address this issue, but we can't forget about all the other things that the employer community has been seeing over the last three years. The Family Medical Leave Insurance Program comes into effect beginning January 1, 2023. Um, so the premiums to pay for that program are gonna be split between employers and employees. You know, I can't wait until employees see that, that deduction out of their paycheck, which I think many of them didn't realize was going to happen when they passed, when they supported that ballot initiative back in 2020. Um, but I think that's gonna come as a shock to them. So there is a little bit of relief in the governor's proposal, a 10% decrease in premiums for six months um, when those premiums hit in 2023. So it's a, it's a little bit of relief, not a lot. But when you combined increased premiums for unemployment insurance, when you combine the family medical leave insurance program, those are things that are just compounded. And what that means is there's gonna be less benefits for workers over time and less opportunity for economic recovery. So, so those are some of the concerns we have going forward. Can I just chime in real quick? Please. Sorry to add on, but the culmination of all those things is starting to show up in the data. That's why these reports are so important. Now we're benefiting from an economy based on policy decisions made sometimes a generation ago. So you're not gonna see some of this stuff immediately, but you're gonna start to see it creep in. And one of the great examples is all these things layered together is among the reasons Colorado dropped from being the 11th most business friendly state in America to being 29th most business friendly in one cycle of the CNBC survey of top states for business. So these things all happening at the same time and, and sometimes based on legislation that passed two years ago, pay equity for example, which not a single employer member of the chamber is opposed to equal pay for equal work, but that's not what the rulemaking process that happened some two years after the statute was passed uh, implemented and it resulted in the number one red article in the Wall Street Journal, remote workers wanted everywhere except Colorado number one red article in the Wall Street Journal. So we're seeing a sort of Washington model of transferring legislative authority to executive branches that then take two years worth of rulemaking before the implementation finally comes out and we're separating the citizens' understanding of the statute from how it's actually implemented years later. And, that, and that's why we have to be so vigilant and engaged at the Capitol to make sure that the free enterprise system and employers and, and entrepreneurs, and we are a top five state in entrepreneurs, 
that, that they understand how these policy decisions are actually going to be implemented when they apply to you starting your own business. Um, so it, it is something we have to be really vigilant about because it's not just what's happening at the Capitol, but that, that empowerment of the administrative state too for through its rulemaking process that can last years. JJ, as long as we got you wound up, let me yeah, ask a few more rants. questions about uh, <laughs> uh, rankings that you brought up. So Colorado is touted for having the second best economy and third highest labor force participation rate. How do you maintain these top spots as a state and continue to create jobs and see our economy flourish going forward? Well, again, I would say realizing that policy matters. Yeah. We have to engage in that. Uh, also, the, the, the laws of economics apply also at altitude. Um, so we have to understand that as well and that what you penalize or tax, you're going to get less of. Why is it so important in part to repay the unemployment trust? Because that's a tax on hiring. Simple. It's back to the only one of the direct taxes we actually have on hiring new people. So if we want to hire more folks, then let's not add taxing to hiring those folks. If we want to maintain our position, we talk about our rankings. Businesses follow talent. That is a change that's happened, I think, over the last generation. Post 9-11, you started to see it. Post Great Recession, certainly, I think COVID has accelerated it now. Talented and skilled workers take a different assessment of how they want to live their life. They choose where they want to live. And then if companies want access to the talented and skilled workers, they have to go to where those people are. So we've been attractive in that regard. The second most highly educated workforce in America, in Colorado, second by degree only to the state of Massachusetts. But almost 60% of our residents do not have a bachelor's degree. And so the work that Dave was just talking about in terms of our skilled labor, our trades, is hugely important. That's the majority of our workforce in Colorado. And you can have a fantastic living, contribute very meaningfully to our economy without necessarily having a four-year degree. And so how do we embrace that and make sure that that workforce is available and promoted to companies who are looking to expand and make capital investments in our region is, is also really important. And then when people come here, they tend to move to do something. That's why labor force participation rate in Colorado is almost always higher, because 52-ish percent of our population has moved here from somewhere else. And you don't generally move somewhere just to sit. So we need to keep those folks engaged and making sure that they can see the rewards from that engagement and that the regulatory burden of, of that's being applied to them doesn't become so great that it's just not a good place to be anymore. And believe me, we compete in a market. Uh, Utah, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, Washington, California, Boston. And so we have to be proactive in our thinking and we cannot rely on the fact that California can be more extreme than us. Sort of the, the uh, <laughs> The we suck less than they suck is not a full-time economic strategy. And, and so that, that is something to keep an eye on. And that's why when we hear from C-suite executives and site selection professionals about should they make that capital investment in Colorado, and then they say something like, you know, where are you guys headed from a policy point of view because we're already in California. That is a huge warning sign to us. And that is benefiting right now Arizona, Texas, Utah, Idaho, among other states with whom we compete, because they're just not sure of our trajectory. And it's not the decision you're making right now, but the decision that I make right now that I'm going to fill the impacts for with my board of directors 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. So I'm a headline guy. Do you think we can get back to where we were in 2019 as one of the best economies in the country? Yes, I think we can. Yes, I think the foundation on which we're building is strong. I still wouldn't want to do my job anywhere else. Yeah. I think we can compete. 
but make no mistake that we can't be complacent and just layer on, layer on, layer on, and not think that it's going to have an impact on our ability to compete with other states going forward. So, yes, we can return to that. I think Colorado can have one of the best economies, but it's going to take that collaboration and the embracing of free enterprise and business and entrepreneurship and democratic capitalism, that these are good things that we can embrace, and that's what creates all the revenue that then our governments can tax for the important work that they do. It creates all the net revenue that then we can donate to our philanthropies so that they can do all the work that we do. So to have a robust community, yeah, we need a strong nonprofit, strong for-profit, strong government sector, but the first of those equal has to be the for-profit private sector. Thanks very much. Debbie, um, Colorado Business Roundtable recently made a trip overseas. What did you learn on the trip about Colorado's tourism and foreign trade? Um, we, we did. If, if you follow us or, or a friend of mine on LinkedIn, we just got back from a delegation trip to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I think where I, where I want to thread the needle on some of this conversation is about the word competitiveness, competitiveness agenda, which a lot of us, um, I think, you know, know is, is really a foundation of the free enterprise system. Um, this is a little bit off topic, Vince, but I think it's one of, the, one of the highlights of that trip was actually a visit to, they actually have what's called a National Competitiveness Center. And we met with the Deputy of Commerce, the Vice Deputy of Commerce, and they're wanting to compete for jobs with Colorado. They want talent, they want money from um, all over the world, and they, it was part of also a, an investment conference that we were at called the Global Investment Initiative that brought in private investment, private employers from all over the world to Riyadh to discuss how um, people can invest and grow and move their headquarters to Riyadh or to somewhere in the kingdom. What's interesting is we were all looking at each other as we're getting this presentation, we're meeting entrepreneurs from all over Saudi Arabia, and our minds are kind of blown because in our country, to some degree, um, we're almost hearing the opposite conversations. There, they're trying to figure out what laws can we get rid of, what regulations can we get rid of, like in rapid fire, rapid pace, to meet what they call Vision 2030, which is their, their game plan for um, diversifying their economy. And, and it was interesting, sort of a mind meld with Colorado CEOs and executives to think, huh, there's some, uh, you know, you come into a country with maybe some ideas of what it might be like, but, but our minds were blown because wouldn't it be great if we had that same competitiveness um, priority set here in Colorado for policymakers? That's great. Hey, yeah. I'm going to uh, ask for a follow-up here. Um, I can't resist. CSI just released this report on crime that was mentioned earlier, um, which indicates we're number one in the nation for auto theft and property crime by some measures. How do you think this recent surge in crime will impact tourism? Well, I think, you know, you're going back to tourism and competitiveness, we did see some really cool tourism sites in Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I think it, it really, you know, kind of seconding what JJ said about the layering effect and to some degree um, Chris's presentation. If you start looking at where you want to do business, where you want to work, and you layer in crime, um, the report was staggering. I mean, I commend Common Sense Institute for putting dollars to what we all probably sensed was true, is sort of this change in our ability to feel safe and where we work, where we walk, um, where we might go um, vacation. And I think um, the policy implications are pretty staggering. So it's another layering effect that I think we all have to kind of join arms and figure out what policies, um, you know, perhaps have the unintended consequences and then what we can do proactively to, to take a good look at that. Thanks, Debbie. Mm -hmm. Hey, this is going to be my last question, and then we'll turn it over to the audience for some questions. Tom, housing affordability remains a challenge. CSI so estimates that we are approximately 175,000 housing units short to meet population demands right now. What are you seeing in your region that can be done to tackle the issue? 
Yeah, Tom. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> uh, thanks, Vince. Thanks, JJ. Yeah. Um, this is a huge issue, Vince, and it's as JJ alluded to. I, I, my big concern is is some of the competition for for talent and workforce. Um, this is an increasing issue because when you're moving to Colorado, if I'm if I'm a young graduate, um, you know, I've got kids and, and they're struggling with how do I stay in Colorado? How do I move back to Colorado? Um, so as you look at this, I think that's the thing we have to keep first and foremost in our mind because if the talent moves and the talent elects to go elsewhere, we will not be competitive. We will not get companies moving here. Um, so I think we've really got to look out on the horizon long term for that because it's a critical issue for our business community, for the free enterprise system, um, and for our citizenry at large. Um, speaking as a parent, I'd like my kids to be able to live in Colorado and be able to afford to live here. Um, go, as we look at this, I think, I, I think we've got a, a complex issue. When everybody says affordable housing, it's often thought of as subsidized housing. And we have some tools that are, that are doing that. I know Buzz has got some stuff here and, and other companies in the region, we're doing some affordable housing projects. Though that's an important piece that I don't want to overlook, but there are some mechanisms to dealing with that. I think the bigger problem that we're facing right now is really one of what I'd call at-market housing. So it's the housing that the everyday person who has got a job, gainfully employed, um, out there, how do we provide housing for that piece? Because what's some of the unintended consequences of some of the, the regulatory environment has been, if I can't build this at-market housing readily at a profit, I, I get squeezed to, I'll do some affordable housing and then I'll go to the high-end housing. So we'll get high-end luxury apartments, luxury condos, those pieces of it, but you're not seeing a lot of the entry marketplace being built. And that, that's, there's, uh, it's complicated, uh, as, as I Chris alluded to, it's this layering effect. I think there are a host of regulations that have impacted this that individually all sound good. I don't think any of us is against, hey, go ahead and build the shoddy house and if it falls down, don't worry about it, it's, it's, it's your problem as the buyer. I don't think that's any of our intentions, but it is the piece of there are unintended consequences to these with the, with the construction defects that have been partially remedied, but we still have almost no condo construction. That's a big piece for entry-level housing. Um, we have uh, greenhouse gas emission pieces requirements are beginning to put on homes. Again, well-intentioned, things we have to address, but they add more cost. Water taps, Colorado's a high mountain desert. Um, water taps are a, are a big expense for this. Um, another piece we have to factor in, construction cost. Um, we we want to put Dave's, you know, the people Dave's going to graduate to work, they, they're, they're, wages are increasing and those construction materials are increasing. So it's, it's going to take, I think, to Chris's point, it's going to take a creative approach to how we solve this. There's not a single problem that we have, but it's the layering of all these things. And, and lastly, I think one of the things we do with our, our local communities is the ability to facilitate streamline permitting and have that go through, because the, the more times we've got to keep people out there going back around these things. So to the extent the local jurisdictions can work on, and I know they all are, um, but work on streamlining those processes, that, that's going to help. So those are some of the things that I think we're going to have to address. But I, I, I echo um, JJ and Dave's points here. We, we need to take this seriously. This, has a, this is going to be a, a core building block. If we don't get that under control, our infrastructure becomes a whole lot less. Our infrastructure for business becomes a whole lot less secure. Thanks, Tom. And thanks to all our panelists for those thoughtful answers. So let's turn it over to our audience now and see if we have a few questions from you guys. Uh, and we have somebody with a microphone. Great. Hey, good morning. Um, Chris Howes. Um, thank you for the invitation and thank you uh, for the crime report, Chris Brown and team. Um, I've been a lobbyist downtown for 27 years. And uh, if you have not been to downtown Denver lately, I would urge you to 
uh, take a spin through. Um, our retail members have grave concerns about the ongoing plague of retail crime, which you can read about uh, a little bit in the crime report. Um, I was on East Colfax the other day with Mayor uh, Mike Kaufman, and we took a tour through one of the retail stores in what only can be described as a working class, gritty part of Colfax. And um, five minutes after the mayor left, there was an organized retail crime event happened right in front of our, our eyes. So um, we have real concerns about what's happening in the urban core, and this is both professional and personal. My wife and I just moved out of Denver after being there for 25 years. Um, so wonder if you have any comments about the urban core, specifically Denver, and how, you know, JJ, <laughs> we remember like the late 90s, that was a lot of fun, right? The, the baseball uh, stadium was being built and, and it was very vibrant. And you go down there now and, uh, you know, you see a lot of tents and um, real concerns about, you know, the where city council and the politics of downtown uh, Denver are headed. That sounds like a question for JJ. <laughs> yeah, so it's a challenging, it's a challenging issue, and and so and we don't just see it in Denver; we see it metrowide. So the Denver Metro Chamber is nine counties in the metropolitan Denver region, um, and Myra Kaufman has had a great experience and great talking about the different segments of of the unhoused and homelessness and those who are genuinely uh, substance misusing and and choosing a lifestyle, and those who are just down on their luck and need a little help. And so he, it's a great conversation to have with him. We need to reactivate those spaces. There's no doubt that when we are able to activate space by having people come back to work, that that, that contributes to a feeling of safety and that matters because pre-pandemic when we talked to workforce, 88% of the region's workforce told, would report that they feel safe at work and that they feel safe in their communities. That's essential uh, for us to maintain talent. So part of it's just a reactivation of space and then it's another thing to address the myriad of other issues that contribute to this idea that it's okay somehow uh, to have crime um, and that we're, there's a certain level of acceptableness to that and we've seen it in other communities and you're seeing some trends in our region uh, in that way too. And we just have to decide I think as a community that, that that's, there's a certain standard that we're gonna hold our, all of ourselves accountable to. Um, and work with our local councils and our local community organizations to try to be impactful there. Uh, but it's a challenge and it's not just Denver, it's the whole region and it's really the state and it's really part of America right now um, that we have to really address seriously because it's, it's a challenge. And we've had companies that say, hey, we're trying to return to work, uh, but we don't feel comfortable walking from the bus station to the office. Um, and so it's, you know, how do we overcome that? Uh, a question, you mentioned 170,000 new housing units. That's roughly 70 to 80,000 acre feet of new water. And if you use the rule of thumb of two to one storage, that's 160,000 acre feet of storage has to be built somewhere. And as you mentioned, the cost of taps in part of this of our region is more than the cost of the land. And it's getting worse. So you talk of, you talk of housing uh, affordable housing. If, if it's a $40,000 tap, the builder's got to make three times that. That's 120000 base price to the house to start. And Governor Hickenlooper did a wonderful, uh, of course it was wrong. All plans are wrong the day they're published. But he did a plan 
and it showed we were way underfunded in water infrastructure. And when we talk of infrastructure, I've not heard much. How are we going to solve that? Because that, that is a real problem. There, there is a likelihood of a call on the Colorado River. Half of Denver's water comes from the Colorado River. Um, I don't know what that means, but what I do know is we need to find a better way to invest in water infrastructure to bring the cost of water and availability down. You mentioned it in your comments, and you're spot on, but we're not addressing it, and that worries me a great deal. Tom, do you want to take that one on? Uh, yeah, it's like Chris. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a lot to add to that. I, I absolutely agree with, with the comment. Um, we are not investing in that. And we, again, we have to recognize um, groundwater is finite. There is, there is some replenishment, but there's, that, that's not a long-term solution. Um, obviously, the Colorado River, as you mentioned, so we are, we are going to have to make some difficult choices. Um, we do live in a high mountain desert. Um, I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Um, if, if maybe I'd make a lot of money and be rich here, but I, I don't have it right now. But it is, it is something we have to pay attention to. Um, and, and again, you look, at, you look at the forest fires and stuff we've had recently, look at right now. I, I have not yet gone skiing. I'm not sure I really want to because I'm not sure there's much snow to ski at this point in time. So we're going to have to take these things into account. And I, I apologize, I don't have a better answer for you. Well, add the uh, regulatory burden, Harold. Yeah. I mean, NEPA, NEPA it, shouldn't, it shouldn't take 30 years for us to permit and construct a water project. This is insanity. I mean, we, with the, we have benefited from the, the, again, talk about generational investments in water infrastructure in our state that have allowed for the growth that's occurred here. But we cannot continue to allow litigation as a delay strategy so that gross reservoir expansion, every single thing now we just say, hey, we're going to litigate this for 20 years. We know the outcome of the litigation, but it's not designed to reach a logical scientific conclusion. It's designed to delay. Right. And that creates, all of that's bad. So the beginning of the, of the reform of our NEPA policy and permitting policy around water in particular is essential. Well, and you know, the, it's the old adage that says, uh, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Um, and you know, that's one of the three infrastructure components that because of the layering effect as we've talked about in regulatory burden, same thing on energy. The regulatory burden on energy to, to be able to source those homes, to be able to supply those businesses, those new job creators, um, has gotten so expensive. Um, you know, it used to be coal was bad and natural gas was good. Now natural gas is bad and everything uh, created through the environment. And, you know, we've been doing green since before green was sexy with low flow toilets and high energy efficient uh, hot water heaters. Um, but we have, we have a societal pressure and a demand that don't build anymore. Same things with roads and bridges, replace it with rail. I mean, we have to honestly, if we as a region are going to uh, be able to be the job creators and move forward, um, we're gonna have to take a step back and get rid of some of that regulatory burden. I, a home developer, a good, good uh, colleague I heard gave a uh, presentation the other day. He said, it cost me over $100,000 a door in entitlements. Let's set aside the fact that it takes me 18 months to get something through a planning department. Um, all of those things are costs. And I'm sorry, you know, developers may make money, Developers are afforded a profit because they're putting their life on the line and they're putting all their financial resources at risk to go do that next deal. Uh, so they should be allowed to make a little bit of money. 
but the regulatory burden and this the societal pressure on you know not in my backyard that's not how we grew to what we are today and as a Coloradan, I, I'm, that's offensive to me, and that's something we have to solve for and dial back some of that nonsensical BS, pardon my French, or we're going to turn out looking just like California. Thank you, David. All right, we have time for one more question. Um, Miller Hudson, I have a question. Uh, if this had, was three years ago, the fight for 15 was underway, and I imagine all of you would be has been saying that that was a bad idea. Well, uh, COVID-19 came along and now $15 an hour is in the rearview mirror. I drive by uh, fast food outfits and they seem to be settling on 17 right now, although I saw an Arby's that said $19 an hour, if you work today, you get paid today, uh, which <laughs> means they're not looking for career opportunities there. Uh, it, it appears to me there's a link to the fact that People aren't willing to take a job that leaves them poor and unable to pay their rent. And uh, where, where is the minimum wage headed? What are, what's happening at the bottom of the employment ladder? Well, I think employers to compete are just going to have to keep increasing that minimum wage and the benefits that they're offering for workers because there is a huge shortage right now across the state and nationwide. So I see this escalating, continuing to escalate just to compete across the state. I mean, that's the simple, honest truth. And I know that, you know, the restaurant industry is really hurting right now just to keep their doors open, but yet they, to do that and to provide the services to customers, they have to provide these high levels of benefits just to compete and, and provide the, you know, the hamburger that all of us want to eat still and make sure that it's on time when it comes to our table. I mean, these are, these are the things that they're going to have to do right now. So I don't see any, any decrease in that wage increase for the next couple of years. But heaven bless him, if Walt Williams were here, he would tell you that the real minimum wage is zero because it means you don't have a job. And it's not just one thing on the wage. So if you look at our inflation, whether you buy the transitory business or not, uh, costs are going up so much more fast than even wages. Wages in Colorado were actually increasing faster than anywhere else in the country pre-pandemic, but not keeping pace always with housing prices. So it, you can't just look at one part of the equation because great if you're making 17 bucks an hour, but if it's $5 to buy a gallon of milk or $7 or your grocery bill's gone up or rent's gone up or, or the cost of congestion or transportation. So you can't just look at that one part. As we, as Chris said, it's, it's not one thing. It's a thousand different things that all layer together. Um, but we need to be, be mindful of people feeling like, wow, wow, I just made, you know, $2 an hour more than I used to and not realize, yeah, but your expenses went up uh, equivalently far more than your income did. And, and again, that's the definition of inflation, and I think we're seeing it right now. I mean, the data will show you we're seeing it right now since highest inflation in 30, 40 years. Something I'll just add in on the federal level, we're hearing more people talk about finally modernizing immigration policies where how do we bring in um, you know, more fluidity of workforce, not necessarily citizenship, but bringing in workforce that employers need. And I think too, we're gonna see pressure to automate probably jobs that can be done that are low skill. Uh, you know, the free enterprise system finds a way. So there's gonna be, I think, pressure now um, as wage pressures go up, inflationary pressure, there's gonna be pressure for new innovation and new, and new ways of doing business. Thanks very much. So I'd like to end with a, a, a closing statement from each of our panelists, uh, maybe 30 seconds, one minute, just to summarize, if you guys can do that. 
So let's go from left to right. Tom, let's start with you. Well, again, thanks to Earl and, and Kristen and the rest of the CSI. I think this is it's critical. The, the data they bring to the conversation is going to be critical. So I think we are emotionally and, and politically polarized as a society. I think the more we can come together around data, um, so I would encourage you as you work through these things to, 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 to refer to these sources, bring these into conversations, and help have these kitchen table conversations, because I think that's going to get back to our legislature and, and to our, our, our regulators at some point. So please, have, please use that data and have those conversations. Thanks very much, Tom. Debbie? Thanks. On behalf of Colorado Business Roundtable, our focus for 2022 will be to do our part in amplifying the voice as business as a force for good in our community. We're going to highlight CEOs, highlight businesses. We'd love to highlight some of you in ways to really tell the story about the impact that business brings and to some degree a little bit counterculture. Um, business is a force for good and we want to make sure that, um, that we understand their importance in the economy. So thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Dave? Well, um, well, I guess tis the season, so I'll look at it. I'll try. I'll try my Chris Brown hat on, um, and and that is, uh, you know, our economy and our uh, community is reflective of the engagement. Um, I don't know how many of you love Zoom. Uh, I don't count myself in that space. Uh, it is a it is a uh, way to get out of engagement in my mind. There are so many critical issues facing our region in this state. I love this state, I've been here all my life. Uh, we need smart people like you to re-engage, come off of Zoom, get back in the game and help us fix these fundamental problems that are solvable, but it is not gonna come over a Zoom call or pick one of the other platforms. I don't work for Zoom, uh, but <laughs> I would just say engagement is critical and I think that's one thing we're lacking at least in the last 18 months, in my opinion, um, and uh, I just wish all of you and your families the very best this holiday season. Thanks. Lauren? Sure. You know, I would just say, appreciate everyone being here today. We are a huge advocate of balance. Our state government does not have balance right now, and the only way we can effectuate change is when we come together. I have seen over the years, um, you know, working with JJ and Debbie and the folks on this panel, when all of our voices come together, we're an army of change. And that's the only way to affect what happens down at the state capitol and amongst our state leaders. We have to continue to push for that change. That's the only way we're gonna make a difference. Um, but we also need to push for balance in state government. And I think that when we get into the next election cycle, just remember that whatever, you know, whatever level of state government you want change to occur in, whether it's the legislature or you know, nationally, or if it's at the state level, just make sure that you're voting, make sure that you look towards some kind of balance going forward, because that's the only way that we're gonna see some change here in policy, and that change in those culmination of all of those different fees and increases and mandates on employers, that's the only way to stop that from happening. Thanks, Lauren. JJ. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to, to add on to everything, it's the holiday season, so let's try to be gracious to one another, especially in the discussion of public policy. Because I'm for water projects doesn't mean I'm anti-environment. Uh, because I'm for employer doesn't mean I'm anti-employee. And let's cut each other a break. We're, we're gifted in this state with some incredible natural assets. We as a society have made some enormously important physical assets, airports, communities, performing arts centers to make this place even better. Let's, let's work together to make sure that the, the Colorado that we see 20 years from now is one that we really do want our kids to, 
to live in and that we're continuing to improve. There's, I, I, again, I travel the world. There's no place I'd rather be than here, uh, but it doesn't happen by accident. And so if you're not a member of the Denver Chamber, join, or your local chamber, uh, but you gotta get involved um, because we, we need your help. It's, it's, it's good to have us up here, but it's better to have you all engaged. Let's have a hand for our panelists. Thank you. And thank you to Vince as well. Thank you, Vince. Two final wrap-up points, and then we will let you go. Thank you for being here. Uh, first and foremost, water was brought up a lot. I just want to announce that the Terry J. Stevenson Fellowship for 2022 will be focusing on water, and we will be rolling out our fellows early January. So look for that news from CSI, but pretty excited about the work. Well, I think we're excited. It's going to be a lot of work. Um, secondly, Chris just told me his magic wand and what he would like. Um, that's for everybody to take each one of these reports at your table. You could, he said they would make a great stocking stuffer too. So, so do that. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your ongoing support. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website under the Podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.